New Zealand's most famous outlaw is James Mackenzie. However, he was in fact a Scotsman from the Northern Highlands. Little is known about Mackenzie's formative years, but it is thought he was born around 1820 and grew up in Rosshire before he decided to emigrate to Australia, where his cousin Alexander Mackenzie had become High Sheriff of Melbourne in 1847 to work on sheep or cattle stations in the late 1840s. Mackenzie was a drover, but he ran into trouble after he was caught cattle rustling. In 1845, it was said he had struck a deal with Aberdeen's wealthy Lord Provost, Sir Thomas Blakey, to supply him with beef for a royal visit. However, Mackenzie stole cattle, including prize animals, then sold them back to the rightful owner, the Lord Provost. Blakey was no fool and recognised the animals, but this was only after Mackenzie had taken the money and fled to Australia. When he arrived in New South Wales, the Gaelic-speaking Mackenzie was given an advance of £200 from his cousin and bought a team of bullocks which ferried goods to the gold diggings. It is rumoured he made £1,000 doing this. He probably worked on cattle or sheep stations too, but in 1851 the east of the country was hit by a drought, forcing many workers to migrate either to other parts of Australia or to New Zealand. Mackenzie headed for New Zealand's South Island. He arrived at the port of Nelson and found employment with Frederick Louis Myville, the first run holder of the Glenham district. At the same time, he applied for a land license, but intended to work as a drover until he heard the outcome of his application. Mackenzie became a familiar figure in Canterbury and Otago, shepherding and cowherding, and he became well known for driving sheep and cattle between the different areas. This led to a keen interest in exploration too. However, the people who employed him became a little suspicious when it was not just one or two animals disappearing, as would be expected when they were being driven across large tracts of land, but dozens or more at a time. There was little chance that so many had fallen down a gully or had become sick, therefore stealing was the only answer and the finger was firmly pointed in the direction of James Mackenzie. By early 1855, brothers Robert and George Rhodes, who were sheep farmers from Tamaru Station, which was also called The Levels, suspected a gang was at work in the region. Around the 1st of March that year, around 1,000 of their sheep disappeared. This was not the first time their animals had gone missing, though. Over the past few years, they had lost numerous heads of cattle and sheep, and in one instance alone, this amounted to around 500 ewes in 1853. A local Maori shepherd, 17, came to see John Sidebottom, the brother's station manager, who was at an area known as the cave, where he was paring sheep's feet, and told him he had seen Mackenzie with his own flock of sheep heading out towards the mountains. He had followed him as far as Campbell Station, but had turned back. The following day, Sidebottom and Seventeen, along with another shepherd, 
called Taiko Torepe, gathered food supplies and rode out towards the mountains to try and track down the missing herd. They soon found tracks. Sheep had obviously come this way with a man and a dog. They reached the bushy gorge of Puyora, where they settled for the night. They followed the tracks the next day, traipsing over unexplored territory, crossing streams and taking an inland past through the Waitaki River Basin and a route through the mountains. They became aware of another set of footprints and those of a bullock. Sidebottom went to the cave for food supplies and sent for two more men to come and help in the search. On Sunday, he sent Taiko to look for the new helpers while he and Seventeen continued on. Just before sunset, they reached the west coast through the snowy mountains, reaching the summit of Dalgetty Pass, when they spotted sheep grazing on a plain below with a man keeping an eye on them. There was also a bullock. They waited for Tycho to return with the two men, but he arrived alone on his horse. Sidebottom made his way down the steep gully and persuaded the two others to follow him. Stealthily, he crept up on Mackenzie, who was preparing to turn in for the night, and hit him so hard he fell. Sidebottom managed to tie his hands before he knew what was happening. As the hour was so late, he decided to wait until morning before heading back to the station, so helped himself to Mackenzie's supper. Once Mackenzie had proved himself to be no match for the three men, he was untied, but Sidebottom confiscated his boots, just in case he had any ideas of running away into the mountains overnight. Two hours later, the sheep became unsettled, and the dogs began barking and growling as they heard calling Mackenzie took advantage, leaping to his feet, whistling at the dogs and calming the sheep. But Sidebottom managed to force him down and overpowered him. He told him to lie still or he would, under the painful necessity of administering a bark poultice to his head, hurt him. He decided that with the prospect of at least one other thief in the area, thanks to the second set of footprints he had noticed on the way to Mackenzie, the best thing to do was to return to the station immediately, but it was late. This was a mistake. By 10 o'clock, the party had made its way with the sheep to the mountains. Sidebottom made 17 walk next to Mackenzie, armed with a stick. He also forced Mackenzie to lead his bullock, which he had told the fugitive to load himself. But as they clambered up a hill, a thick fog descended. Sidebottom left Seventeen to guard the prisoner while he tried to keep the sheep moving up the hill. But as soon as he was at the head of the sheep, Mackenzie bolted. Seventeen managed to catch him briefly but couldn't hold on to him. Meanwhile, Sidebottom believed Mackenzie had friends in the area who would try and recapture the sheep, so the two men drove them all night and all the following day. They also brought the bullock, Mackenzie's dog Friday, and his blanket. Meantime, Mackenzie headed north, hoping to find his collie, and covered 100 miles by the time he finally reached the town of Littleton. 
It was from here he hoped to escape on a ship back to Sydney, but there was no sign of his faithful companion, so he rented a room at a boarding house in the town while he waited. Sidebottom made it back to the levels and dispatched 17 to Littleton to tell the Rhodes brothers what had happened. That notwithstanding, he also wanted them to know that the track he had found leading up to the pass had been used before, and he firmly believed that this was not the first time Mackenzie and his companions, whoever they may be, had done this. He said the bullock belonged to a Mr Innes, and that it would be prudent to have pistols at the cave, with these men still at large. The police were contacted and given a description of the fugitive. A reward was also offered for his capture. On Thursday 15th March, Mackenzie was finally apprehended. He was charged on the 16th with sheep stealing and remanded in custody until his trial. On the day of his apprehension, £100 of a £250 reward was paid, with the remainder being paid to any person or persons who shall give such information as will lead to the conviction of all the parties concerned and the recovery of the stock. The reward notice was placed in the newspapers by the Rhodes Brothers on the day Mackenzie was captured. During Mackenzie's questioning, he pleaded guilty to the charge of sheep stealing. The clerk to the magistrates, Christopher Charles Bowen, recorded the questioning that took place in both English and Gaelic so that no doubt could be cast on the case as Mackenzie pleaded in English. His trial took place in April 1855 at the Supreme Court in the Town Hall of Littleton. During the trial, Witnesses were called to the stand and the whole account was given to the judge and jury. The judge called for a dog to be brought into the court as Mackenzie had refused to plead and remain silent until his dog was brought in. Friday recognised her master immediately and began wagging her tail, slipping her lead and ran to him, whining as she did so. Mackenzie began crying at the sight of her saying softly to her that they had got her too. The dog was ordered out after Sidebottom cited in court that this was indeed the dog that Mackenzie had with him that night in March. He pleaded for his dog to stay with him in prison, saying that he had paid for her with his own money and how faithful she had been to him all these years. But the judge called her a witch and as such, she was to be destroyed. She was removed from the courtroom. Mackenzie was a broken man. After reviewing the evidence, the jury returned a guilty verdict, and the judge sentenced him to five years hard labour. On 10th May, Mackenzie managed to escape from the road gang where he was working in Oxford Street. The police officer who was supervising them was temporarily absent and he ran towards the mountains. As soon as it was noticed he was gone, the whole police force was sent searching for him and a notice was placed in newspapers by the local sheriff, Charles Simeon, whereby a reward of £50 would be paid on his recapture. The description of him was detailed. 
He was about 5 feet 11 inches tall, with light hair, small grey eyes, a large nose and a long thin face. His body was described as spare and muscular. At the time of his escape, he was wearing a brown wide awake hat, cloth waistcoat, check shirt marked with a broad arrow, corduroy trousers, a pair of worsted socks, no boots or shoes. It went on to say he feigned to only understand Gaelic when in fact he could speak and understand English. He was recaptured after a few days on the run, some 25 miles from Christchurch. The police had tracked him along the foot of the hills, but he had called at Mr Lake's station at around 7 o'clock on the Friday morning, apparently exhausted. Some friends of Mr Lake's were visiting and recognised him. He was arrested after he was allowed to wash, then bound and laid on a wagon and brought to the port by Mr C. Russell and some workmen. About halfway into the journey, Mackenzie had freed himself from the rope that bound him and attempted to escape, so Russell called on him to stop. He failed to do so and Russell shot him in the thigh and back. Mackenzie stopped briefly and placed his hand over his thigh but began to run away again. One of the men unharnessed the horse from the cart and galloped after him, knocking him down. He was rebound and brought back to Christchurch, then taken to jail in Littleton. Undeterred, he escaped again in June, but did not get any further than Raupeki and was found hiding in the bush. This time he was placed in 18-pound leg irons. Still, he would not give up. He attempted to escape again by filing through his irons, although it remains a mystery of how he managed to get hold of a file. In September 1855, a new magistrate arrived in Christchurch and reviewed the Mackenzie case. He found flaws not only with the police inquiry, but with the trial as well, as he had no lawyer defending him. Sheriff Henry Tancred befriended Mackenzie, and over time he managed to get him to open up. The prisoner told him that a man called Mossman had paid him £20 to drive the sheep from Canterbury to Otago, but just before Sidebottom had arrived on the scene, Mossman had fled and told him to stay with the sheep. Had Mossman been the owner of the other set of footprints, and if so, had he set Mackenzie up? As a result of all this, he was pardoned in January 1856 by the governor due to his imperfect knowledge of English, which may have prejudiced his trial, and the detrimental effect prison was having on his health, but he was told to leave New Zealand. According to the Littleton Times of 12th January 1856, it was reported that he has since his liberation paid his passage money to Melbourne. This suggests he was heading to Australia, but nothing is known about his life there. A pile of clothes, however, was found by a local stream, but his body was never recovered. Mackenzie's exploits 
have left their indelible mark on the South Island. The place where he was found with a sheep in March 1855 was nicknamed Mackenzie Country. As it happened, it was none other than John Sidebottom who returned to the site where he had been found and was interested in finding out where he had been heading. This is now named the Mackenzie Pass. There is a monument to him and his faithful companion in the town of Fairley, as well as the monument which was erected in 1917 in the Mackenzie Pass. There is also a monument of a border collie on the shores of Lake Taikepo, which represents all the collies who work with the sheep in the area. As for Friday, she was not destroyed, but she goes down in history as the only dog to ever stand trial in New Zealand. Mr L Langlands, who was in Christchurch one day, spotted her in the company of a police inspector called Pender, who kept her for a time. She was then trialled with other shepherds, even ones who could speak Gaelic, but she refused to work for them. Many years later, the granddaughter of George Rose, Irene Woodhouse, found a photograph in a family album and underneath it was written, Yours faithfully, Friday. On the back was written, The oldest on the station and favourite dog of the late G. Rhodes Esquire, July 29, 1864. Her father told her, he always understood the photograph to be that of James Mackenzie's dog Friday and that she was given to him by his father George. James Mackenzie's exploits endeared him to many in New Zealand. Small-scale farmers who resented the power and wealth of the large estate owners revered him and those who felt on the edge of Canterbury society identified with his rebellious nature.